Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 15. Oops. I just made a mess. <laughs> I just knocked over the glass of water in the pulpit. I hope I don't get wet. Um, anyways, there's lots of other things I could have said there, but I'm going to just restrain myself. Anyways. John chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 18, uh, and extending to chapter 16, verse 4. Um, for those of you who didn't hear the announcements before we began the service, I would encourage you to come back tonight. Uh, we're beginning this series on Sunday nights that I'm doing on uh, called Fearfully Made, or The Joy of Being Human. Uh, there's so much confusion in our world about what it means to be human. Uh, and so much of, especially the confusion out of the LGBTQ agenda and uh, various other aspects in our culture, I think really center right here uh, over what does it mean to be human. So we'll be looking at things like what does it mean to have a body and uh, what does it mean to be created male and female and what does it mean to have a soul and what is the image of God and, and other topics like that um, so that at least as Christians we might have some understanding because at some level I'm less concerned about whether the world understands these things and I'm far more under concerned about whether you understand these things. Uh, so encourage you to come back tonight uh, at six o'clock, but here this morning, we're here in the middle of this upper room discourse uh, that began back in chapter 13 and extends to chapter 17. And we've just heard Jesus talk about uh, and give us a picture of what a real vital relationship with him looks like. Remember, and he gave us this metaphor of vines and branches and, and abiding in him and continuing in his love. Um, but then it seems as though he's shifting gears, but he's really not. Uh, in some ways, as I mentioned on the first word on worship, the way the Father prunes us is through the opposition of the world. That's how the Father grants us grace to, to bear much fruit. We learn to love one another as we experience opposition. Because in this life, as followers of Jesus, we are hated by the world, but we're not left alone. Not only do we have one another, but God himself, by means of the Holy Spirit, dwells in us to help us in the midst of the world. And that's good news. That gives us hope. But in order to see that this morning, we do need the helper, the paraclete, to come beside us and open our eyes. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Indeed, helper, paraclete, advocate, counselor, we ask that you would come. Holy Spirit, we pray, come alongside your word this morning and the reading and preaching of it so that our eyes of faith might be open and we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Lord, grant that we would not simply have our heads informed, but grant that we would have our hearts touched so that we might live as followers of Jesus Christ. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated, has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will indeed put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the year 203, uh, the Romans had once again determined that it was a good strategy to prevent the the advance of Christianity by threatening to put people to death. Um, But not just threatening, they actually carried out their threats. And in a number of cities at the beginning of the third century, persecution against Christians broke out. In one particular city, uh, a group of five men and women defied the Romans' orders not to become Christians on pain of death and began the process of catechesis that would lead to baptism. Uh, One of these young women in the five, in the group of five, was a young woman named Perpetua. Uh, She was born into a noble family in Carthage in what was then North Africa, near Tunisia, in the late second century. Uh, By 203, she's a 22-year-old mother of one, and she had come to commit herself to the Christian faith desired baptism and desired to be part of the life of the church because she had put her faith in Jesus Christ. But in doing so, with the other four, she had opened herself up to persecution and eventually to death. She would be arrested. Her son would be taken from her by her unbelieving father who did not want his own daughter to nurse his grandson and so continue under her influence. The authorities repeatedly questioned her and tortured her, trying to turn her from her profession so that she might swear by the luck of Caesar and bow the knee to Caesar as Lord. And finally, after all the failures, the the chief justice of the courts in Carthage delivered judgment. The five new Christians including Perpetua and her dear friend Felicita, would be executed. On the next day, uh, Perpetua was brought to the amphitheater. One eyewitness who recorded her memoir said that Perpetua followed her executors with a placid look, with a step and gait as a matron of Christ, beloved of God. She sang psalms as she was tortured with scourging. And then she was placed in the middle of the amphitheater and a fierce wild bull was set loose on her and her friend Felicita. 
The bull injured her, but didn't put her to death. And so a gladiator came and thrust a spear in her side, and that didn't kill her. The gladiator began to have a crisis of conscience. He didn't want to behead this woman, but she took his sword and placed it on her neck and said, please finish me off. We hear accounts like the accounts of Perpetua and Felicita, and we're immediately, at least I am, we're immediately thankful that we don't live in such difficult times. After all, people don't, don't hate Christians in this day and age and place, do they? Well, if you've spent any time on the Voice of the Martyrs website, you know that the 20th century, in terms of the number of martyrs there were for the Christian faith, um, far outpaced any other century. In fact, uh, those who study these things suggest that there were more martyrs for the Christian faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. And the pace hasn't slowed into our own century. But, but not just among the nations. So survey data over the past 10 years or so suggests that many American evangelical Protestant believers feel persecuted for their faith. For example, a 2015 Barna survey suggested that 60% of evangelicals felt persecuted for their beliefs. And that, that data hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, there were surveys in 2017 and 2022, and the range was between 57 and 62%. Well, of course, when we think about this, we have to say that thankfully very few of us here in America would ever experience anything like what Perpetua and Felicity experienced at the beginning of the third century. But on the other hand, we, we do know real opposition. We do know real struggle in the public square when we live as Christians. This past week, I was teaching down in Orlando for RTS, and I was talking to a faculty member in the STEM discipline, and he was telling me about the, the struggle he felt as a Christian dealing with his transgender students. Fearful that if he said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, that he might be terminated from his job. Some of us encounter situations like a banker friend of mine, confronted with inclusion policies in his bank that, that violated his conscience. Other matters besides. And so it is the case that we, we often feel the, the hatred of the world. The good news, though, of this passage is that is that even when we experience opposition, real opposition, painful doubts, Jesus doesn't leave us alone. Jesus grants us help. Help in the midst of our struggles. Help in the midst when we face opposition, when we bear witness for him, and we know the opposition of the world. Jesus grants us his help by the power of the Holy Spirit, who bears witness alongside of us, to Jesus' grace and glory and goodness. There's one who helps us in the world when we are hated by the world. One of the things that's striking about the passage that we've read together this morning is the, is the quick transition that Jesus makes from love to hate. 
Of course, as you probably notice, as we read the passage together several times, that word hate or hatred comes up in my, the Bible I use for my morning prayers. Uh, it's a Bible that I mark up. And so I, as I read the passage this past week, I marked all the places where Jesus talks about hate. But it's striking because the last verse of the previous section, Jesus had talked about loving, didn't he? I mean, you see it there in your Bibles, chapter 15, verse 7, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And then immediately, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. What what accounts for such a quick transition where Jesus is talking about loving God and being loved by God and then loving one another as the fruit of a real vital relationship with him? Moving immediately from that to talking about hatred, what accounts for that transition? Well, it's this new identity that we've been given because of our relationship with Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been telling us for many verses through the end of chapter 14, through the first part of chapter 15, this is what it looks like to have a real, vital, continued relationship with Jesus. And What it looks like is a branch that's in the vine that continues and remains in connection with Jesus with the result being that that Jesus is in us and we are in him. We enjoy real communion with him. But another thing it looks like, this real vital relationship with Jesus, is that we're no longer connected to the world. We are no longer of the world But rather, as our assurance of pardon has already told us this morning, we've been transferred. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness, and we have been brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, which means we are no longer in relationship. We no longer are are in partnership, in fellowship with the world. What does the world mean? What, What is Jesus saying there? Well, by the world... Jesus is talking about the the created moral order that stands in rebellion against him. John will talk about this in his first letter, do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone who loves the world, the love of God the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and pride and possessions or the pride of life is not of the Father but of the world. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We used to belong to the world, valuing what the world values, living our lives according to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and pride of life. But because now we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have been transferred. We are no longer in connection with, in relationship to the world. Now we're in relationship with Jesus. And as a result, Jesus says, the world hates you what he says in verse 19 if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you such an identification with jesus to where your identity is shaped by a real vital relationship with jesus should put you in opposition to the world around you it should put you in opposition to the, those who are committed to the values of the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and pride of life. And if that's the case, you will inevitably feel 
opposition. After all, that Jesus knew opposition. And if we are in relationship with him, if we are connected to him, if we are branches in the vine who is Jesus, well, if they persecuted Jesus, won't they persecute you and me? I mean, Jesus says that in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. This is from John 13. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But why is that the case? I mean, why is it the case that, as Jesus says, that because of our identity in connection with Jesus, because we have a real vital relationship with Jesus, why is it the case that the world hates us? Why is it the case that we would know opposition or even persecution? After all, we're, we're nice people. At least most of us are. And, and we do good things. And we proclaim a message of steadfast love and forgiveness and of holiness and happiness. Why should anyone hate us? What's well, because, because you're connected to Jesus, because you're in relationship with Jesus. And Jesus tells us here that his words and his works make the world feel guilty. And because you're in relationship with Jesus, when your words and your works reflect Jesus's words and works, people around you will feel guilty. I'll never forget uh, so many of the conversations that I had uh, with classmates uh, at a course I took in, about 15 years ago now. I had the opportunity to take a class at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government uh, and met just a, a number of fascinating people. One of them was a guy named Neil, um, who was from Wales. And as I got to hear a little bit of Neil's story, um, he he told me how he was raised within uh, an evangelical church. Actually, he was, and this sounds a little strange to us in America, he was raised in the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Church. Somehow in Wales, they can pull that out off Calvinism and Methodism going together, but there it was. And, and Neil was raised in that denomination, was taught the truth of the gospel. But, but he came to conclude and reject Christianity because, as he told me, Christianity was a religion of guilt. And Neil didn't want to hear that. Because as we went on in the conversation, I discovered Neil had left his wife to begin a relationship with another man. And there's a sense of which, of course, Neil was exactly right. Yes, Christianity is a religion of guilt. I mean, Jesus says as much here. <laughs> Did you see it? Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And so my friend Neil is exactly right. Jesus through his words and works, showing the perfect, glorious standard of the Father, revealing his, his holy character, all of us who, who fall short of that, what do we know? We know guilt in the sight of God. All fall short, or 
and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul tells us in Romans. And so, yes, that's exactly right. But that's, of course, not all of the message. Yes, Christianity, Christianity does talk about guilt, but it also talks about grace. It talks about forgiveness. And that's the great irony, of course, is that, is that the world rejecting Christianity because it, because it convicts them of guilt, it makes them feel guilty, they actually confirm their own perspective of God. They think God is simply a judge. That God is this, this old man judge in the sky who, if he exists at all, he's only there to spoil our fun and to bring judgment upon us for following the desires of our hearts, the desires of our eyes, the desire of our flesh and pride of life. That's who God is. But by failing to hear what Christianity is really about, not just guilt, but grace, they, they miss the heart of the message. Namely, this God who is a judge delights to be a father for all those who come to him through Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're here today and in your conception of Christianity is that it's only about guilt, I've got news for you. Actually, two parts news. And the first is this, you're exactly right. In fact, it's worse than you know. You're worse off than you think. It's not simply that you sin here and sin there and feel guilty about it. No, you're actually sinful through and through. Your heart is deceitful, the Bible says, and desperately wicked. It lies to you, which is why Jeremiah says, who can know it? You can't even know your own heart. You are in worse condition than you can possibly know. And yes, there is guilt that's attended with, with violating the law of a holy God. That's all true. But there's another part that you need to hear. Though you are far worse than you can possibly know or imagine, through Jesus Christ, you are more welcomed and loved than you could possibly know. Because God sent his son Jesus to bear the guilt of his people, to take upon himself their wrath, their curse is rightly theirs, so that you and I might go free. You might go free and be cleansed and be new, be transferred from the world to a people called church, transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of, of God's own son. That's the message As we tell that story, those of us who've come to know Jesus through this good news, what we call gospel, we do no opposition from those who refuse to hear the good news of the gospel. And yet, though we are hated by the world, Jesus gives us some measure of confidence, some measure of hope. Namely, there's hope, there's help, excuse me. There's help for you and me. Though we're hated by the world, there's help in the world. You see, Jesus is hugely realistic about life in this world. He knows that when we experience opposition, persecution, hatred, it, it might stagger our faith. That's why he says at the beginning of chapter 16, I, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He, he knows that it might be possible when we know difficult things in our lives or the opposition of others that we might stagger and even possibly if it if it could happen, fall away. But Jesus not only gives us his word as a prophetic warning about what the future holds for us, he promises us something much better, something much more tangible and hopeful. Namely, he promises the presence of God's own spirit, and he calls him the helper. 
In chapter 15, verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It's actually the third time in this so-called upper room discourse, chapter 13 to 17, the third time that Jesus has mentioned the Holy Spirit. He's mentioned the helper in chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. He mentioned him in chapter 14, verse 26. This is the third time. As with the other times, he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. And as with the other times, he tells us that he, he proceeds from the Father. The Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name. And once again, he, he calls the Holy Spirit the helper, the paraclete, the one who comes beside to, to exhort and encourage and to advocate. But what we discover here is, is that the Holy Spirit helps us as the Spirit bears witness to the world. That's what he says, isn't it? That, that when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Well, how does he do that? Well, the Spirit uses you. That's why the verses go on. And you also will bear witness. You see, the Holy Spirit comes to bear witness to the world, and he uses you so that even though the world hates you, the Spirit empowers you. He draws near to encourage you. He draws near to exhort you to do this one thing, to bear witness, to, to tell the truth, to, to tell others, even though there's opposition, the truth as it is in Jesus. What does that look like? Well, lots of different examples, but one in particular. There was a Church of England pastor at the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, named Charles Simeon. For 54 years, he served as pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. And the opposition, the hatred, the persecution that he experienced was actually from his own congregation. He had been placed there as a, as a gospel-preaching preacher, but his people didn't want to hear it. In fact, for 12 years, they opposed his ministry. And the way they, they demonstrated that is that the congregation locked the pew doors so that those who actually wanted to hear Simeon preach couldn't sit in the pews. And so the pews would be empty, and those who wanted to hear Simeon preach lined the aisles or sat in the balconies and brought their own chairs to hear him preach. That was real pain and real opposition. And yet God used his ministry so that over 54 years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young men surrendered to go to the mission field, to do international missions. So many, in fact, that in 1799, Simeon started the Church Missionary Society to have an ascending agency so that these men might have support from their homeland. It's right to say that the Baptist William Carey is a father of the modern missionary movement, but it's just as true to say that this Anglican, Charles Simeon, was as well. And what was he doing? In the face of hatred, in the face of opposition, what was he doing? Bearing witness. Bearing witness in the face of real opposition, real difficulty, real pain. Look, we shouldn't expect when we tell others about Jesus or we simply live the Christian life, that, that the world won't hate us. Jesus says, no, that's the case. The world will hate you. But the answer isn't to wage war against the world. It's to bear witness. 
But that may come with a cost. It's interesting that the Greek word behind the way the ESV translates bear witness, that Greek word is the word we get our word martyr from. Such a, such a witness that the Holy Spirit empowers us to give will cost us. It'll involve us in risk and broken hearts and opposition and hatred and desperation. We'll feel as though we're dying again and again as we bear witness to Jesus. But we have to, we have to know two things. First, that our, our, our bearing witness is rooted in Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. But that second, as we join the Spirit in bearing witness amid a world that hates us, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit himself bears you, bears you up to witness. You see, friends, God's Spirit is present to strengthen you and to sustain you and to uphold you to witness so that when you feel as though you're faltering, he will bear you up. He'll carry you. And when you feel as though you're staggering, the Spirit will upright you. And when you feel as though you want to quit, he'll push you on to continue to bear witness And he will bear you to witness because you are God's own means for declaring his goodness, his glory, his grace, for declaring truth to this world. That's that's the purpose for which God is sending you out into your families, into your friend networks, among your co-workers, in your civic organizations, is that you might bear witness that God loved this world so much that though the world hates him, he loves the world so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to bear the guilt of sinners so that they might be set free. And if people would just simply plead the blood and righteousness of Jesus then God's own character to them will be as it actually is, not as a judge, but as a loving father. Who knows what what purpose in God's world historical plan would be accomplished through your witness? Who knows? Who knows? Whether it's your child or grandchild, whether it's a friend or a son or daughter of a friend, whether it's a co-worker, because you bore witness and they put their faith in Jesus, who knows how the world will be changed through your witness. He had preached for several years in churches across Asia. He was not able to preach in buildings like this or cathedrals. No, because of the opposition of others, he was preaching in house churches, teaching 10 and 15 at a time. But his preaching was finally discovered and he was arrested and he was He was convicted and sentenced to death by those who believed they were offering service to God. And his highest, his people's highest tribunal had set his execution date and they took him to the execution spot. And while he was there, he bore witness again, bore witness again to the truth as it is in Jesus. But there was another man there who heard his witness He had been largely on the fringes of all that had happened legally. But he was there in the courtroom. He was there at the execution spot. In fact, he was there to try to make sure that all happened the way it ought to. He hated Jesus and he hated Jesus' people. But he was intrigued by this young preacher. And when the preacher died, you know him as, as Stephen. The other young man was wrestling with what he heard. You know him as Saul. 
who would later become Paul, who would later be converted, because Stephen bore witness. Friends, even though we're hated by the world around us, that does not know the Father, that stands guilty before them, the Spirit bears you up to bear witness. And it's hard for you to know the effect of your witness if you will simply speak a word concerning the truth as it is in Jesus, that he is a savior and a friend of sinners. Who knows? Who knows? Whose life might be changed simply because though you were hated by the world, the Spirit helped you to tell someone else about Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bless you that though you could have used all sorts of other means or ways or ends, you chose to use sinners like us to bear witness. Lord, I do pray for my friends who know opposition and difficulty, struggle within their families or in their workplaces. They feel real opposition. Lord, we ask that you would grant us your grace. Grant us grace to make the good confession. Grant us grace to tell others about Jesus. Lord, we do desire to proclaim you as the true king of the world. Lord, we ask that you would grant us your grace and your spirit, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Let's turn together.